<laughs> oh, we have such pleasant guests. You don't, I don't have want to. Ruin their don't don't no, do an no. awful one. We don't know what it is. So uh, there's several actually. You know what? Fine, fine. I'll, tell, I'll give you do the, the worst dentist. one. I'll, do I'll, the I'll worst give you. I'll, I want to ruin I'll, their day. Go. I'll, I'll give you the heroin dentist story. All right. Oh, so God. I got a guy. Uh, if you're unaware, uh, to our, our lovely guests, uh, I'm a physician and I work in an emergency ward. Uh, so I get lots of strange. Of course, cases you found a way to say, "Oh, I'm a doctor." Like <laughs> hey. you will always find a way to flex. Sorry, please. Uh, it's either that, or they're gonna be like, "Why? What is this homeless man doing with these patients?" <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I need to clear my name. But anyways, so um, uh, I had a guy come in, and uh, he basically his story was that uh, he was very nervous at the dentist. Um, so they gave him some benzo, was benzodiazepines uh, to, to, you know, uh, like get rid of the anxiety. And, and then he basically passed out on the, the, the dental chair. And the dentist freaked out, uh, gave him the antidote for the benzos, and it didn't work. So then he called uh, the emergency, uh, like a call an ambulance. They went to him, picked him up, uh, and they gave him more of the benzo antidote. It didn't work. And they gave him naloxone, which is an antidote to opioids. Uh, and he just spontaneously woke up, um, you know, just magically, because that's what happens. <laughs> and what so that what that indi- what that indicates is, I, at least the way that I'm, I, I understood it, because uh, that <laughs> the funniest way to think about it is this guy shot up heroin or something, and, and then, then decided, the you know what, I'm going to go <laughs> to the dentist. Most likely not. Most likely he was. Um, we did a talk screen, and no opioids showed up. Huh. Uh, so it's very strange that he reacted, but sometimes the, the you know they're not one to one, right? Uh, so or it depends on what kind of uh, opioid he used. Uh, but anyways, um, just imagine Jordan some guy, Peterson behavior getting very getting put some to- bed's nose. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> very very put together man. Very you know uh, modern haircut. If if, that, if you understand Jordan what Peterson. I'm trying to say, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and yeah. Um, Doing heroin before before the dentist. Uh, that's a, the mild story. I'm gonna I'm gonna okay. save all the other ones. I was gonna uh, say that wasn't so bad. I was expecting something yeah. horrific. <laughs> no 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 no. We have, we have, we have nice guests. I'll, I'll behave. Uh, do we want to? Do you guys have anything that you'd like to say? Any bantering of your own that you'd like to add? Or do you ever done heroin continue? before going to the dentist? I've ever done heroin, but <laughs> I'm glad it worked out for that guy. <laughs> yeah, no uh, kidding. Do you experience that a lot? Do you get a lot of people who come in? either having overdose high off their mind yeah oh my god intox patients uh, we get so many of them they're my favorite Um, depending depending because you have uh, several kinds you have the super aggressive ones you have very chill ones and you have people who like will piss on the on the side of the um the 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 department and then will fling their feces um (laughs) depending you do that too so (laughs) fair enough right that is true that is true it is part of a uh my uh my uh what's it called uh overseeing physician today happened to be slapped in the face by a guy or a lady, I don't remember exactly, who had a fistful of their own feces. Shit food fight. Yeah. Is it legal yeah. then to throw your own shit back at them? Like, shit self-defense? Okay, come on, coffee, coffee, please. Oh it's, my God. It's, it's, it's too much. But yeah, um, poor, poor, poor uh, lady. She, uh, I... I went up to her to ask her a question right after this and uh she was basically uh having a shitty day (laughs) you could say she was munching on some mint thing that we have in the clinic uh in case you do get something that's very unpleasant tasting in your mouth Uh, and i felt very bad for her at that instance um and then she was telling me about she's like this is the second time i career that this happens i was like oh god all right (laughs) i have something to look forward to um but are are these mint flavored things medicated or are they just mints (laughs) 
No, no, they're just like uh, kind of mint, but they're very, very strong. Uh, it is a palate cleanser, you know. Uh, in, it, it's just in case, for example, you happen to get... I mean, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure there are plenty of unpleasant <laughs> things you can get. Yeah. yeah, it's not meant to be for, for you know, getting feces. No, but it's meant for other other purposes. Uh, but I feel very bad for her. And she remained working with a smile. She's a fantastic woman. Wow. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> thank, your, thank your healthcare personnel because they have to deal with it. <laughs> when you have to eat so much shit because of capitalism sometimes the Mm. real shit doesn't even taste as bad exactly right i'm I'm fairly Mm. sure it does (laughs) we're being (laughs) (laughs) uh, i I don't know if if jt with his lovely newborn uh has to deal with the sort of projectile (laughs) oh now that you know so far so good but now that i've said that i'm gonna suffer so thank you very much for that can't wait to be woken up at three in the morning (laughs) by jt (laughs) tell me you cursed me (laughs) (laughs) the poor thing though she did um she did throw up for the first time the other night uh, and that was the poor little thing that she was so dazed and unhappy Mm -hmm. and clammy oh that was so sad for the first time don't they puke like crazy like all the fucking time they they spit up which is Mm. different from vomiting it's just Mm. you know like a little bit of milk or something here to win the game again she spits up (laughs) yeah hey I've never seen anything vomit with more force than a, than an infant, though. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen grown men, six, six, eight, seven foot men, towering lumberjack looking guys, and they, with sheer force of, of poisoning, basically, can't get the same as like a, a four month old. It's, I wonder it's ridiculous. Why. Yeah. Um, eh, I think maybe it's. <laughs> There's a smaller amount of path, like pathway to fall, smaller oh, so it's like, amount of fluid. It's like the hose so, where you stick your thumb over half exactly, the hose. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like one of those, I think. But yeah, um, now that you mention it, I've only puked on, been puked on maybe like seven or eight times. By kids. That's great. Only seven or yeah. eight. Wow. You're uh, <laughs> living the dream. <laughs> hey, that, I mean, I'm, I don't work with kids. Thank God. Yo, alhamdulillah, I don't work with kids. Um, I, yeah, I can't. I, I can't. I'm not a physician, but I've been puked on at least like 20 fucking times. But you know, <laughs> no, no, I'm but that's a fucking alcoholic. Yeah. Like. <laughs> exactly. If it's yourself doing the puking, it doesn't count. Yeah. Right? <laughs> no, no. I never puke, actually. I never puke. Though I have an insanely, like, uh, reflective uh, gag reflex. I like, guess retroactive trigger warning to all the our dear listeners. Yeah, I'm so sorry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm so sorry. I, I feel worse for our guests, man. Yeah. Well, howdy, dear listeners. Today we have a first for us, because if you uh, if you don't count the Australians, which you shouldn't because it's a fake country, this is the first time we have two guests on the show. So that is a total of five people on this podcast. We're going to do our best, I promise, to keep things uh, nice and orderly as you're used to. This is the most <laughs> well-organized and professional podcast currently in existence, after all. So without much further ado, let me toss it to Calla Walsh and Shaquille Fontenot, today's guests and co-chairs of the National Network on Cuba, among a host of other things. Two comrades who have very graciously given us some of their time to talk about the important work they're doing with the NNOC and other organizations in solidarity with Cuba. So, Kala, Shaquille, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, thank you so much for having us on. I didn't realize it was the first time having two guests, so <laughs> we are proud to be the first ones. Um, my name's Kala Walsh. I'm one of the co-chairs of the National Network on Cuba, along with Shaquille, We are uh, an organization, a coalition of over 50 different organizations 
working to end the U.S. blockade on Cuba. And Shaquille and I were also co-coordinators of the 16th International May Day Brigade um, this April and May, leading the U.S. delegation. So Shaquille, I kind of already said your part, but I'll let you go and add in what I missed. Yeah, you know, um, I'm on the party line now and that I know that we're the first uh, multiple guests feature, so I'm really excited about that. Um, But in addition to being a co-chair of NNOC, I'm also one of the co-founders of the Low Country Action Committee in Charleston, South Carolina, and we're members of the Black Alliance for Peace. So, Callie, you got to shout out your other orgs, too. Come on now. (laughs) Go on. Yeah, and I'm also in the Communist Party USA International Department. Um, I'm part of the Boston-Cuba Solidarity Coalition and Massachusetts Peace Action. Um, I'm originally from Boston, but I'm about to move to D.C. to start doing some more organizing there in the belly button of the belly of the beast, as we say. (laughs) Very nice. Well, thank you, comrades, for that introduction. And just one more thing I wanted to add real quick is that Kala is just 18 years old and is already doing all this important work. When I was 18, I was still like watching SpongeBob and playing Minecraft eight hours a day. That's wild. I just every time that one of you young whippersnappers uh, <laughs> talks about all the things you've accomplished. I look at my career, my, you know, quote unquote career. I'm like, man, <laughs> what have I done? What have I done in, in that time? So very impressed. Um, we all expect uh, great things from from both of you guys. All right. So I guess let's just go ahead and jump in here because this is going to be, I feel like, slightly longer one. Um, so we want to talk a little bit about Cuba, the state sponsors of terrorism list, uh, the work that the NNOC is doing. Um, and we'd like to touch on a bit about the upcoming CPUSA International Conference, which I believe you're you're moderating, right, Kala? Yes, I'm very excited. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I worked on the the one from last year. I made a video for it, and I'm um, I'm working with the media team again this year, and we've got some some great guests. Uh, shout out to to the link in the description. Uh, everybody, go click that. Register. Uh, it's online. It's it's going to be a good time. I promise. All right, but let's uh, with that out of the way, let's jump in a little bit. What NNOC, SSOT, there are a lot of acronyms going on here. Can you give us just just a real quick rundown on on what these things are? Why is Cuba on this SSOT list? And what does the NNOC want to do about it? Yeah, so maybe I could talk a little bit about the history of the SSOT list. And then, Shaquille, if you want to talk about these June 25th protests we're planning and the Off the List campaign, does that sound good? Sounds good. Awesome. So... The state sponsors of terrorism list is a list that is created and maintained only by the United States. Um, But because the U.S. has enormous control over the global financial system, um, listing countries on the SSOT list has big impacts on their ability to get loans, to participate in international trade. And a lot of banks just don't deal with these countries out of fear of retaliation by the U.S., So Cuba was first uh, listed as a state sponsor of terrorism in 1982 by Ronald Reagan, um, and he cited their support for national liberation movements uh, against colonialism around the world, such as their military aid to Angola against the U.S.-backed South African apartheid government invasion, um, which Cuba played a pivotal role in. And so he cited that as the reason um, as Cuba being terrorist. And Of course, it's important to remember that just the word terrorist is so subjective in the U.S. Mm. It's never used against um, or it's never used to label the terrorism committed by the U.S., um, murdering 
and displacing millions of people. Um, it's only used against enemies of the U.S. to demonize and dehumanize them and to justify military intervention. So that's why Cuba's labeled terrorists. That's why Palestinian resistance fighters are labeled terrorists. That's why even peaceful activists protesting Stop Cop City um, are being labeled as terrorists. So mm. Cuba was kept on this list uh, until... Obama removed them um, in like 2014, 2015, during this period of rapprochement with Cuba um, and cited that there was, you know, no evidence that Cuba was committing terrorism, even though the U.S. still agreed with them on things, disagreed with them on things, that they weren't committing or sponsoring terrorism. But in the very last weeks of his term, um, on January 11th, just four days after the insurrection on January 6th, Trump added Cuba back to the list. And mm. This followed, um, over Trump's term, just a complete turnaround of Obama's policy on Cuba. Um, he added 243 additional new sanctions. He reversed all the almost all the normalization efforts Obama had made um, and really doubled down on fighting this war on Cuba, which went hand in hand with his attempts to overthrow the governments of Bolivia, of Venezuela, who are important regional allies for Cuba. And he also did this um, reversal of adding Cuba back to the state sponsors of terrorism list right before Biden took office to kind of set up Biden for this um, political obstacle he'd face where he'd be getting pressure from both sides on what to do about keeping or removing Cuba from the state sponsors of terrorism list. And mm -hmm. during his campaign, um, Biden promised to, you know, return to Obama's normalization to reverse the harsh, the harshest sanctions that Trump had added. But instead, Obama, um, Biden has changed very little and he's really doubled down on this idea that Cuba is a so-called state sponsor of terrorism. Um, and just yesterday, they, um, as required by Congress, they released um, a list of countries that they say are not cooperating with the U.S. efforts against terrorism. And they listed Cuba, Iran, uh, Syria, Venezuela, and the DPRK. And again, citing no evidence um, of Cuba supporting actual terrorism. Just earlier this month, Cuba was sitting down with U.S. diplomats having discussions on cooperating on anti-terrorism. So um, it is really Biden's uh, political cowardice that is keeping uh, Cuba on this list. So I'll stop there and I'll let Shaquil talk about what we're doing um, to fight Cuba's listing um, on the state sponsors of terrorism list and why it's so important. Right. So that was a beautiful explanation. I also want to highlight the fact that um, even for humanitarian aid, Cuba has restrictions in engaging with other countries. So part of our off the list campaign, um, we have a multi-tiered approach to combine political education, outreach, local and national actions to drive awareness to this issue, but also to promote political action in general. And although our intention is to get Cuba off the state sponsors of terrorism list, Immediately, we also are urging uh, Biden to lift the sanctions on Cuba as well. So um, we're in like stage three of a four or a five or a six stage campaign. We don't really know where it's going to go after our action because we want that to be in the hands of those that we're organizing with. So right now we have over 50 endorsing uh, organizations that are endorsing our action weekend in Washington, D.C., so we're going to be having a lobbying day, a film screening, art builds, and different cultural and internationalist events to drive awareness to this, but also to stand in solidarity with the Cuban people. So um, this protest is actually a culmination of activities that have been happening all over the country for several years in support of Cuba. 
So uh, we're inviting supporters who can come and join us in Washington, especially from cities close by, but also encouraging local actions as well. Because as Caleb mentioned, these restrictions are becoming a humanitarian issue in that the U.S. continues to penalize both countries and people that attempt to engage in trade with Cuba. So um, it's really affecting global exchange and not even from a monetary or social standpoint, but also just being able to engage with folks across um, the diaspora from the work that I do locally, but also um, really have that medical and cultural exchange that we really need to survive as a society. Yeah, just to add on uh, a little bit more there, um, it's not just a restriction on trade. You know, this has prevented like Cuban Americans from transferring money to their families, from faith groups in the U.S. sending humanitarian supplies, from U.S. universities working with Cuban academics. And the coalition we're building against the blockade, it's not just people who are, you know, revolutionaries, anti-imperialists, communists, socialists. There's a lot of, you know, regular people, Cuban-Americans, who are simply opposed to the blockade because it's preventing them from from helping their families and, and keeping relationships with their families. So um, that's important, too. And we ha- are having this lobbying day uh, in Congress right before the protests because there's actually a bill right now Um, being introduced by Marco Rubio and Maria Salazar, um, these right-wing Florida Republicans, that is trying to codify into law Cuba's position on the state sponsors of terrorism list so that it could only be undone by Congress if Cuba meets certain conditions, basically Mm -hmm. impossible criteria to completely change their political and economic system to what the U.S. defines to be free in order for this designation to be lifted. So we're going to be lobbying to urge representatives not to sign on to this bill. Um, But I think that really shows the, the fundamentally undemocratic nature of these sanctions and this blockade, um, which are about, you know, a complete lack of respect and opposition to Cuba's right to sovereignty and Cuba's right to decide their own system and their own government free from U.S. imperial control. And so that's why all these sanctions and the blockade are basically conditioned on Cuba and the Cuban people overthrowing um, the current government. Yeah, that act that Kyle was referring to is H.R. 314, also known as the Force Act. And it's just as raggedy as the rest of U.S. (laughs) relations right now. So definitely wanted to uplift that. Well, it sounds like you're both doing some some really important and and, uh, needed work there. But uh, what exactly led you both to to get involved with this? What was your political development like that led you to want to get involved with the NNOC uh, and work towards getting Cuba removed from the state sponsors of terrorism list? So, like I said, I'm 18 and I first got involved in politics um, when I was like 15 through climate organizing. And I guess I was I was pretty radical then. Like I understood we needed an entire socialist reconstruction of our system to stop the climate crisis. But I think the organizing spaces I got involved in were at first very liberal and de-radicalizing. Like a lot of organizations out there that are readily available for young people, they're super skilled at like co-opting and de-radicalizing us or directing Mm -hmm. this revolutionary potential into just supporting the apparatus of the Democratic Party. So I started out working on a lot of electoral campaigns for a while in Massachusetts, where I'm from, but eventually I broke away from that sphere of organizing because of imperialism and how embedded even a lot of these quote-unquote progressive lawmakers are in the military-industrial complex. So 
I started organizing for Palestine and through um, those groups, I found out that there was a local Boston Cuba Solidarity Coalition. And I'd first started learning about Cuba because of its uh, connections to revolutionary movements in the US. I read the autobiography of Asada Shakur and the elders in this Cuba Solidarity Group in Boston, they encouraged me to go on last year's International May Day Brigade with the NNOC. And so we fundraised so that I could go and we gave scholarships to other young people. And I went and it was absolutely life changing. And I think as a young person in the U.S., like getting involved during the Trump presidency, I feel like so much of our politics and our outlook were just defined by this sense of hopelessness and honestly, like defeatism. So going to Cuba and seeing that a better world isn't just possible, but it already exists uh, was really transformative. And seeing that Cuban people like they have more belief in the U.S. people to make a revolution here than than we do ourselves. And that Hmm. was really empowering to to hear from them and also just to see the day-to-day impacts of sanctions and to talk to people and know that they are relying on us to go back to the U.S. and to fight against the blockade. So I became a co-chair of NNOC last fall with Shaquille. Um, I got to go back to Cuba in December for the U.S.-Cuba Youth Friendship Meeting. And then together we are just in Cuba um, for the May Day Brigade a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, for me, I had a similar experience in kind of that that liberal to communist pipeline, I guess. But um, I was Classic. working with <laughs> unhoused folks very early um, at a very early age, like 12 and 13, because my mom was doing wow. some organizing work, doing mutual aid work. And so I had kind of a conception of the things that were wrong before I even got into like institutions of higher learning. So when I did end up going to college, it was during kind of the height of the first Black Lives Matter movement with Mike Brown's murder. Um, And prior to that, um, I had been developing more political consciousness in trying to really study history, the history of revolutions, um, international revolutions, and seeing how that fit in into a U.S. context. So a lot of what I was experiencing from a quote-unquote organizational standpoint was really reactionary versus being true organization with with a strategy and a system to ensure that the people were in power. So after I graduated from college, I worked in um, Texas, Mississippi, and Louisiana, and I saw the craziest disparities that I've ever seen in my mm-hmm. life. With um, When I was teaching in Mississippi, I only had one third grader out of a class of 20 that knew how to read, and they had wow. books from like 1954. So I'm seeing these unhoused folks, I'm seeing these kids that don't know how to read, but across the railroad tracks, kids that don't look like them have this abundance of resources, um, which were not being fairly distributed, obviously. Um, So after that, I was really just pissed off. Um, I got involved with organizing um, through the Low Country Action Committee, which is actually a part of a network under the National Alliance Against Racism Political Repression. So that group uh, was doing Philippine solidarity work, Palestinian solidarity work, um, Puerto Rican solidarity work. And so that really fostered a sense of internationalism within me. And I started to see the connection between all the struggles Um, that I was witnessing. And so when I got in the Cuba Solidarity Movement, I actually was just learning a lot about Cuba, reading History Will Absolve Me by Fidel. Um, Mm -hmm. My partner got me looped into the movement, introduced me to a lot of older comrades that were in the National Network on Cuba. And they basically just forced me to do labor uh, prior to me even visiting the (laughs) island. But it was just so pleasurable to me because I was just really fascinating 
you know, being able to learn about revolution and then visiting the island, yeah. seeing revolution in context, the socialist project. And and for me, it was like the connections were even deeper because I was looking at it from a lens of like the Afro-Cuban experience. So mm. being able to make those diasporic connections and see that black and brown people in the global south everywhere were affected by the same conditions. And that's usually due to U.S. imperialism. Um, that's kind of how I got it dove deep into the movement and I'm still diving deep. <laughs> so it's exciting to see that transition in your own political journey, but also um, your revolutionary understanding about what is possible. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's just, in, it's incredibly inspiring to hear that there is a, you know, maybe if not a, an official pipeline, there are avenues for people of all ages to get involved and make a real difference, um, whether in their communities or by helping to organize something like what the NNOC is doing to try to get Cuba off the SSOT list. There are ways for people to get involved. There are ways to avoid that defeatism, to, to kind of feed a revolutionary optimism, to believe that we can make a difference. We can fight back against this <laughs> this neoliberal hellscape that we that feels so inescapable sometimes. Um, it's like the quote about, you know, capitalism feels inescapable, but uh, so did the divine right of kings. So you know, this is something that we will get past. We, you know, it's, it's going to take a lot of hard work. It's going to take belief that we can do it. Um, and, and the stuff that, that you and your, all your comrades are doing, uh, I think, is invaluable in that effort. Um, but moving on just a little bit to the, uh, to the specifics of this trip, I've been working with the CPUSA International Department for um, the upcoming conference, like I said, and uh, a comrade had reached out to see if I'd be interested in tagging along for this Cuba trip. And I was hoping to go. Logistics just didn't work out. So maybe next time, but <laughs> maybe I can live vicariously through through the both of you. What was the visit like? What what goes into organizing something of that scale and that complexity? So just give us a quick rundown of the experience. We even start with that, Kala. So, so <laughs> even before you get into the island, it's just a lot of kind of uh, personnel interactions, a lot of administrative work with making sure that we have everything we need to support our Cuban comrades on their end. So it's kind of organizing on the U.S. side and organizing on the on the um, Cuba side to ensure that we have a really robust program that accommodates people as best as we can. So when you actually get to the island, um, they're in the middle of a fuel shortage right now, again, mm. due to the U.S. economic blockade. Um, so that was pro a tricky part, kind of arranging travel for folks and making sure that um, they got where they needed to be when they got to the island. But it was a different type of experience. And Kala, I'll pause and let you kind of speak a little bit about this because we were supposed to be at an international camp, but ended up not being able to do that. Kala, jump right in. <laughs> Yeah, so another important thing to know about the uh, delegation that NNOC organizes, um, it's for the International May Day Brigade, and we organize this with the Cuban Institute of Friendship with the Peoples, which is like the official institution in Cuba that does this kind of international solidarity work um, with almost every country in the world. And there's a lot of different like trips and brigades um, that go to Cuba around May Day. So that's why I distinguish um, this one. And it's international because there's delegations from like 30 other countries. We had about 60 U.S. people and there were about 300 folks total. We had one of the biggest, um, if not the wow. biggest delegations. And most years, um, like when I went last year, we all stay at this camp together, the uh, Julio Antonio Maya International Camp. It's named after one of the founders of uh, the Cuban Communist Party, and it was constructed by 
thousands of international brigadistas as a camp where we could stay when we come to Cuba. But because the fuel shortages um, are so extreme, um, especially around May Day, we instead were uh, staying in different hotels around Havana in the city because the camp is like 40 minutes outside of the city and it would have been too much um, to transport mm-hmm. us all. So just with all the adjustments we were making, like in the final weeks right before we came to Cuba, we could really see like firsthand um, the impacts of the blockade and how much worse it's getting just day by day um, as the U.S. is blocking a lot of these fuel shipments. Mm-hmm. Um, And then another uh, big change in the program that resulted because of that was um, the May Day celebrations, which um, were first suggested to be um, still on May 1st and um, just in local communities rather than um, like most years having this huge parade um, in the Plaza de la Revolución in Havana, um, where millions of people march, workplaces all send, you know, buses and buses of people. It's a really important holiday in Cuba. But because of just the limitations on transportation, um, instead, the uh, marches for May Day were moved just into local communities. And they were also pushed to May 5th because there were some storms right the, right before May Day um, that really just put more pressure on um, the Cuban infrastructure. But I think we really saw the resilience of the Cuban people, too, who um, are you know used to making so many adaptations and dealing with the consequences of the blockade in Uh, their daily lives. And we still had an amazing revolutionary May Day celebration. We were in Sancti Spiritus, another province for May Day instead of Havana. Um, But we got to march alongside Cuban workers and delegates from Latin America, Asia, Africa. So that was really incredible. Yeah. And so in addition to that, we were um, able to have really great conferences with the Cuban people about the what is really going on in their society in terms of their legal and legislative system. Um, So everything we learned was pretty much in contrast to what the U.S. propaganda pushes and is funded Mm. to push. So we learned about the current economic situation, the effects of the blockade. We, we had a really in-depth discussion about the media war against Cuba. We got to visit local community projects and committees in defense of the revolution. Um, we got to exchange with our comrades from all over the place, as Kyla mentioned. There were 30 different countries there. We spent a lot of time with the South American um, delegation. We spent a lot of time with the UK delegation, working at production centers, visiting neighborhoods. Um, and really just communing with one another in, in a unique way. We got to see uh, the Fidel Castro Center. We got to see the Che uh, Complex in Sancti Spiritus. So we, we did a lot of things. Um, I think one of the, what really stood out to me was being able to exchange with uh, union workers in the cultural sector because I learned that Cuba supported 24,000 artists during the pandemic. I learned Mm -hmm. about how no matter your gender identity, if you have a child, you get a whole year off of work paid by the government. If you have any complications with your pregnancy while you are still working, they make you stop immediately and they subsidize that income because they value human life above all. So no matter what sector we were learning about, no matter what center we were in, um, it's very reflective in the strength of the Cuban people. And as Kyla mentioned, they constantly have to make adaptations due to the designation as a state sponsor of terror, due to the U.S. economic blockade, and yet they still have a higher literacy rate than us, lower infant mortality rate than us, despite not having access to all the resources that we do. So that was kind of the the main messages that we were getting um, over the trip. And again, 
it was a different experience for us, I think, as coordinators, because we had heard a lot of this messaging before. But every time you go, there's a new something new to see about the innovation of the Cuban people. And I also want to highlight the fact that they made five vaccines, highly effective COVID vaccines, yeah. without having access to any of this. And one of them is a nasal spray. So come on, like, <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> Yeah, what Cuba's been able to accomplish, despite being under the boot of the most vicious, uh, oppressive nation in the history of the world, is just incredible. The fact that we have this little island nation uh, resisting U.S. imperialism 90 miles off the coast of the most anti-communist state in the most anti-communist country in the world is just a testament to the will of the Cuban people um, to not only survive, but to continue to grow and pursue their own self-determination. That's just incredible to hear. But just, out, you know, for my own curiosity, was there any particularly meaningful interaction or experience you had there? Like, what was the thing that sticks in your mind the most about the trip? Yeah, I wanted to highlight, um, I guess I'll highlight two things. So one, at the very beginning of the trip, we were there for two weeks and I stayed a few extra days after. But for our first few days, we were doing uh, voluntary farm work um, at an urban garden in Havana. And uh, just to give some context for the history of of these U.S. solidarity brigades to Cuba, um, the very first uh, big solidarity brigade was the Venceremos Brigade, which started in 1969 and has been going on ever since. I think they're in like their 52nd year now. And those brigades came specifically to help Cuba with their sugar harvest. And since then, um, as part of many of these brigades, we do um, voluntary work and contribute to the Cuban economy um, as, you know, a labor of love to to show our service to Cuba. And working all together as a big group of people, just in like three hours, we were able to accomplish three months work, um, three months worth of farm work. And we did that three days in a row. And learning about Cuba's um, urban agriculture system is also incredible because Cuba was developed into this um, monocrop, very extractive economy just to export sugar to the Spanish Empire and then the U.S. Empire. And since um, the revolution in 1959, they've really been trying to develop out of that, you know, like dependency economy and diversify um, the use of land. And also um, because sugarcane is such an important crop, um, they've, you know, created hundreds of byproducts of sugarcane um, that can be used for different purposes. So we visited a laboratory where they are like testing like hundreds of different t- kinds of rum, making hand sanitizer huh. with sugarcane. That was really cool to see. Um, and just doing farm work and learning um, from these very like community based um, agricultural systems um, was incredible because in the U.S., like the food we eat is so processed. We're so just disconnected from where our food is actually coming from. Mm. And in Cuba, there's a lot of limitations on what food is available um, because of the blockade. But all the produce is organically grown. Barely no pesticides are used because they literally can't buy them because of the blockade. And so seeing how that impacts, you know, what people eat was really interesting to me. And then the other thing I wanted to highlight um, was meeting the president, meeting um, Miguel Diaz-Canel. Oh, wow the first secretary of the Communist Party of Cuba and the president since the spring of 2021. He's the first president who is not um, Fidel or Raul Castro and the first president to be born after the triumph of the Cuban Revolution in 1959. And 
that was obviously, you know, really credible for a lot of different reasons. We got to meet him on May 1st alongside other U.S. delegates. And then on May 2nd, when we were at the International Meeting of Solidarity with Cuba, which is a conference with, I think, like a thousand people from different countries mm. representing different parties and organizations. And I've obviously never met a president before. And most of us hadn't met a president before. Um, Chris Smalls was there and I know he's met Joe Biden. Yeah. But I think <laughs> yeah. it was a lot cooler to meet the Cuban president. Um, and it's also significant that he's, you know, taking time to exchange with these hundreds of mostly young mm. people from the U.S. because Joe Biden would never do that. Joe Biden doesn't like care oh. what we have to say. But before the president even spoke, like 10 or 15 people representing different groups in the U.S. got to stand up and speak and um, talk about the work that we're doing in solidarity with Cuba and also the work we're doing to try to liberate our communities in the U.S. Um, so that was amazing. And I think there's kind of this idea that we're fed in the U.S. media that, you know, the Cuban revolution is dead, that since, you know, Fidel isn't president anymore and Raul isn't president anymore, that there's, you know, like no hope in the revolution, that it all faded away once like the original guerrillas from the Sierra Maestra died or stepped out of power. But I think that couldn't be further from the truth. And the revolution is carried on every day by people who were born decades, even the century after um, the revolution first took place. And the revolution is a, a continuing process that people are carrying mm. out in their everyday work and their everyday lives. And the youngest people, like my friends who are in university in Cuba, like they are really at the forefront of that work. Um, so those are some of my highlights. I'll let Shaquille go next. Yeah, comrade president, my dog. <laughs> he is such a personable president. And like Cal was mentioning, the accessibility is just on a different level. And I think that just speaks to the confidence that um, he has in the U.S. solidarity movement. So that was a highlight for me. But also a presentation we got on Cuba's biotech industry. So we're learning about the lung cancer vaccine that Cuba has, the diabetic ulcer treatment that Cuba has to avoid amputations like the go-to in the United States. So seeing all these medical innovations just really, it, first of all, it, it disgusts me the fact that we don't have normalized relations because yeah. there are people that are losing their lives globally because they don't have this knowledge and information. I think there are only one or two universities in the U.S. that have gotten, quote unquote, permission to collaborate with Cuba to continue this research. But there are so many lives that could be saved um, if these relations were normalized. So that biotech industry presentation just really spoke to the number of investments that Cuba has made in um, biomedicine and, and designing all these important vaccinations in addition to treatments for people as young as two years old and we don't see that anywhere else in the world so um, that was pretty incredible for me yeah that's that sounds just absolutely amazing I mean the, the the story we're told about Cuba in the United States is just so far from the truth and the way that they will constantly try to spin any kind of gathering as, oh, this is an anti-government demonstration. And then always in the background, you see, you know, 26th of July flag. You're like, no, those people are, you know, they are pro-government. Like these people, they're trying their very best, the media in the United States, to make Cuba seem like the bad guys. But I think more and more, it's becoming apparent that that's just not the case to the average American. So I think that hopefully... You know the work you're doing, and the the abundance of information now that we have um, from you know podcasts like Blowback and and uh, assorted independent coverage uh, is really helping to kind of move the needle towards normalizing, hopefully pushing for normalization of relations with Cuba. But you know a lot of work yet to be done, as you're well aware. Um, but that sounds like a, a really really meaningful trip. Now, at the end of the trip, 
I heard that some of our comrades got detained when they arrived back in the States. What's the story there? Yeah, I was actually with a group um, and two of uh, two of my comrades got detained and uh, I was surprised it wasn't me, but I was like, oh, they'll get me <laughs> next time. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it was just it was just an intimidation tactic. The United yeah. States government is trying to discourage the growing solidarity movement with Cuba in the United States. Um, and so they're threatening our comrades. Uh, we see it happening with the FBI raid of the All African People's Socialist Party last year, the yeah. Puerto Rican Solidarity Group that went on a delegation to Cuba that was um, questioned and harassed in September. So the customs agents and border patrol agents, they like to intimidate a little bit differently in Florida. And a, a majority of those that were detained were detained there, which is in alignment with the fascist politics that we see happening yeah. there anyway. But they're asking questions like, what's your occupation? Who booked the trip for you? Are you with an organization? And luckily, you know, we prepped our brigadises ahead of time and we have a lawyer with a Cuba solidarity focus that can support all of us. But I mean, it could be a scary experience for those that haven't gone through that um, before. And even those that have, because you see an agent in uniform, they're being really intimidating. They're saying, look, look, you you can't lie to me. You'll get in trouble. You get thrown in jail. Um, And really just lying to them, which, uh, you know, they can legally do. So um, just I was able to record immediately after they got out of detainment their stories. And so we'll be able to like share more about that later. But I just think it speaks to the power that we have as a growing movement in the U.S. Because every I told all the comrades, I'm like, look, if we were nobody, they wouldn't have bothered us. But the fact that yeah. we are turning the tide now just shows you how much power we have as people, how much power we have as a movement. And it wasn't just the NNOC brigade um, that had brigadistas detained. We had over 10 people who were taken into secondary questioning. But a couple days earlier, um, some other brigades in Cuba at the same time as us, the International People's Assembly and the U.S. Hands Off Cuba um, labor delegation, they also had a number of people detained Mm -hmm. um, and had electronics taken and it really showed that, like, everything the U.S. says about Cuba being a repressive police state <laughs> is, is quite the opposite. Yeah. That's true about the U.S. And we experienced that as soon as we stepped foot on U.S. soil. And it's a continuation of this historic repression of Cuba solidarity organizing. You know, the earlier brigades that I was talking about, like, when those people came back, first of all, they couldn't fly from the U.S. to Cuba. They had to take, like, freight ships from Canada or they had to fly wow. to, like, Hungary and the Czech Republic and then Cuba Um, just to get to an island 90 miles away from Florida. Um, And then when they got back, they'd have all their possessions seized. The FBI would follow them. They'd visit their parents. They'd interrogate their parents and try to intimidate them out of their work. And so obviously it's not happening to that level as much like in this century. But the fact that there was an increase of repression at at the airports and coming back through customs this year definitely shows like the solidarity movement is getting stronger. And so they're trying uh, to scare us out of it. Well, it's, it doesn't come as any surprise that a lot of this ha- was happening in Florida, the way Florida has gone recently. It just turned into an absolute um, dystopia there. But if I'm not mistaken, there have been several of these solidarity trips recently. I think there was one to Peru a while back. Um, what is the overarching goal of these visits as a whole? And uh, how important would you say it is to foster these international relationships between communist parties? Yeah, it's incredibly important to travel outside of the imperial core mm. and see the, you know, absolute like devastation that imperialism, that sanctions 
are creating and that all the wealth we're surrounded by in the imperial core is literally the product of. Um, It's important to build internationalism, to learn from how our comrades are organizing in conditions different than ours, but that even if we're across the world from each other, our struggles and our fates are still intertwined. Um, And with Cuba, I think it's especially important for a few reasons. First, because it's a communist party which actually wields state power and has Mm -hmm. the participation of the broad masses. We obviously don't have that in the U.S. or most countries in the world. So we have so much to learn from Cuba's experience constructing socialism and all the triumphs and the contradictions that come with that. And what was most incredible for me to see is just the unity that Cuba has been able to build through the Communist Party and not just through mass membership in the party itself, but also through national mass organizations like the Committees in Defense of the Revolution, the Federation of Cuban Women, the Young Communist League, student federations and many more, um, the Trade Union Congress. Like the Committees in Defense of the Revolution, I think over 85% of the population is a member of. And with the Federation of Cuban Women, like over 85% of women over the age of 14 are members of those organizations. And they have direct roles like in the lawmaking process, in the electoral process, where they wield like real power um, and shape policy. and there's just the other reasons why I think it's really important to to visit Cuba and to visit other countries in general as well. A lot of U.S. people don't realize we can travel to Cuba. And obviously there's a reason for that. And I think generally, like if the U.S. doesn't want you to travel to a country, that's probably a good reason <laughs> to go there and to figure yeah. out the truth. Like it's the same with the DPRK. I wish we were allowed to go there because we should you know, be able to mm-hmm. see the truth and bring it back here. But the U.S. doesn't want us to see Cuba's reality or socialism's reality outside of the imperialist propaganda that is being regurgitated to us every day. And living in the U.S., like we don't see the impacts of sanctions like sanctions are presented as these like nonviolent things and that, oh, they're only targeted at the Cuban government. But the reality is like the Cuban government is the Cuban people. It is a socialist revolutionary government in which the masses of people participate. And sanctions are war. Sanctions kill. We don't see that in the U.S., but in Cuba, you see the impacts of U.S. sanctions literally every second of the day. Like Cubans have to deal with the obstacles created by the blockade in their daily lives, going to work, schooling. There isn't a single aspect of Cuban society that hasn't been impacted by the blockade. Um, And Cuba's development has really been defined by all the adaptations it has had to make in response to it. Uh, if if I if I could just uh, inter- or like uh, comment one little thing, um, it's a I don't know if it's a particularly um, sad thing that Americans have never experienced sanctions themselves. Who knows? Maybe down the line. Um, but it's a very uh, interesting form of limitation because, like you said, people or the American government, for example, will say that it's only targeted against the government. But the things that are limited are so essential Mm. um to daily functioning of any industry or any workplace or just everyday regular people's lives Uh, and the best example is well for cuba as well as for iraq which was prior uh the most sanctioned country on earth um even more than the dprk is now and even more than cuba is uh if you can imagine uh the simple fact that antibiotics weren't allowed to be imported Mm. Um, aside from basically, I think one or two options, uh, as a result of which, uh, we have in Iraq, an incredibly high percentage of antibiotic resistance, uh, way higher than, uh, nearby countries. Uh, and as a result, uh, this is 
even after sanctions have the sanctions have been lifted for nearly for 20 years basically now but the consequences of said sanctions are still felt by the iraqi populace as a result of what, what with the limitations on our medical system that's not even to mention uh, limitations on other sorts of um, medications and support items that are required to run a uh, modern healthcare system. Now extend this to even uh, preliminary or prerequisite parts for industry, no matter how benign it may be, including make, making pencils, for example. Um, the uh, lead inside pencils wasn't allowed to be imported in Iraq, uh, uh, as an example. All of these things boil down to basically halting or intentionally trying to cripple and bring down the quality of life of average Cubans, for example, as it was in, in Iraq, and to try to make the uh, make the uh, country or economy or leadership seem incompetent or unable to uh, uh, solve the issues that regular people face. And of course, we've known this since the 60s, uh, declassified CIA documents have mm. uh, explicitly stated that their goal is to bring about as much misery as possible through their sanctions, at, so as to basically cause... Um, not revolution, but overthrow of yeah. the current uh, government. And that is a form of a transparent class warfare that is never considered to be uh, uh, particular. If the, if the U.S. saw, for example, did something like this, we would never hear the end of it. But the United States has done this and continues to do this and continues to expand in this regard. And not a peep, not an article, nothing. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's, it is incredibly damning i think once you're you know aware of the basics of what's actually happening that somewhere like the united states will say oh this is an anti-democratic regime in x country for cuba for example and then you learn about the specifics of cuban democracy and you're like wow this is way more democratic than the united states like it's not even close it's it is it just goes to show what actually matters in the imperial core, what matters to the global hegemon? It's not democracy. It is it is control, and it is the suppression of alternatives yeah. to the capitalist status quo. And that mm. if that takes sanctions, if it takes invasions, if it takes color revolutions, coups, whatever, that will continue until it is forced to no longer continue. Yeah, I'd like to add on just quickly there that also the blockade and its continuation is fundamentally undemocratic. You know, every year, 96% yeah. of the countries on earth in the United Nations vote against the blockade, even some of the U.S.'s closest allies, like yeah. the U.K., Canada. And a majority of U.S. people also oppose continuing the blockade, especially restrictions on food and medicine. And, you know, even anti-communists, even people who want to overthrow the Cuban government, like they acknowledge the blockade has obviously not worked to enact that. And... I think one of the most incredible parts about being in Cuba is just like, you know, walking around and talking to so many Cuban people. Um, and that's one thing I really miss, like being back in the Imperial Corps is just back here. Like no one smiles at you on the street. No one says yeah. hi. Like no one wants to yeah. talk to you. Whereas in Cuba, like people are so friendly and so much less alienated from each other. There's such a strong sense of community because community and that kind of collective culture like is a very basis of the social system and it's how people still survive um but talking to people about the blockade i had so many good conversations with cubans who i'd tell them they'd ask why i was there i'd tell them i you know i was part of a trip trying to normalize relations between our countries trying to end the blockade 
and people like genuinely um, are so are so passionate about the fact that you know you there are U.S. people who don't support our government and there are U.S. people who want to travel to Cuba and want to normalize relations with Cuba and who believe that we have the power working together to end the blockade in our lifetimes. Talking about that vote that's taken every year, it, what is it? It's it's the United States, Israel, and I believe now Ukraine is are voting to keep the blockade. Is that correct? I think Ukraine abstained Abstained. last year and then brazil before lula was inaugurated brazil also voted against it and i think in some past years like colombia when they've had a right-wing government have voted in support but besides that like across the board it's it's every country except the u.s and israel and one year even the u.s abstained from the vote condemning (laughs) the blockade which is funny it's just one of the absolute clearest things on earth that it is a brutal inhumane pointless blockade and it really does need to go. So I'm, again, just massive props to, to all of you doing the work to, to actually get this thing lifted. Um, I'm sure the Cuban people are, are glad for the support. And it sounds like they uh, have greater faith that, you know, people in the United States in the Imperial Corps can affect change, maybe greater, greater faith than we have here. So that's something to keep in mind for all of us, all of us uh, here in the States. But uh, moving towards wrapping up, we've we've mentioned the CPUSA International Conference a couple times, um, and Kala. Now that it's official, you're the the front runner, right? How does it feel to be the face of the party's biggest international event, and what can we expect from this year's conference? Oh God, I don't know if I'd call myself the front runner, um, <laughs> but yes, I'm excited. I'm excited to be moderating the international conference. It's going to be. A really exciting couple of days hearing from communist parties and anti-imperialist organizations from around the world. Um, I think hundreds, maybe thousands are expected to participate. And the National Network on Cuba will be presenting um, on our work to end the blockade and the off the list campaign. And we will also get to hear from the communist parties of Cuba, Peru, Australia, many more and speakers like Vijay Prashad. And I think it's significant because ending the blockade has been a big focus for CPUSA's international work and CPUSA is a member of the National Network on Cuba. And I think this conference will put into international context this current stage of the U.S. war on Cuba. It'll show how it's connected to the new Cold War against China, how it's connected to the U.S. sanctioning of other countries, the speeding up of de-dollarization and how all that will impact Cuba. Um, so yeah, I encourage people to sign up for the conference. Um, you can find it on the party's social media, and I think you said you'd put it in the description link too. Yep, we'll have all, any links you guys mentioned will be in the description. Uh, I've tweeted the link out a couple times. I'll do it a couple more times before the conference. So everyone, please do be sure to uh, register and check it out. I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be really cool. I've got a video there too, so a video you won't see on my channel will be played at the conference. Um, all right, well that I think just about wraps us up. I mean, we could talk about Cuba and its democracy and the blockade for hours. Um, So if there's anything else you want to add, please feel free. Um, Otherwise, I guess you can go ahead and plug uh, any projects you're working on, any links you want us to to share with our audience, anything you've got on on the horizon. We'd love to hear what you're up to. I just got one thing I want to share. And I I think that the U.S. government is afraid of exporting revolution and they're wearing Mm -hmm. themselves thin. So we can and will be liberated from this malicious figment of freedom. And we have the Mm -hmm. ability to intensify and deepen these class conflicts. 
Um, we're organizing and we're leading these working class struggles against this fascist and inhumane subjugation of the people globally. So now's the time to get involved in organizations who are part of this movement for self-determination and using your energy as a community to avoid burnout and persecution. So if we take care of and defend one another, I know we will win. So if you want to get involved in the NNOC campaign, just go to nnoc.org backslash off the list and you'll get all the information about our ongoing campaign as well as our off the list action and just really appreciative of being with y'all today because it's always good to be in the presence of comrades Mm, it's been our absolute pleasure yeah thank you Uh, so much um and we will see you at the white house la casa blanca on june 25th uh to tell biden to end U.S. terrorism against Cuba and to tell them that Cuba is not a terrorist state. The U.S. is the real biggest state sponsor of terrorism. That's what I'm talking about. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Spicy. All right, everyone. uh, Thank you again, uh, Kala and Chiquil, for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure. You heard it here first, everyone. Please do get involved, whether that's, you know, we mentioned CPUSA a lot, but there are plenty of other options. Check your your local communities. See what's available. There's CPUSA, PSL, FRSO, uh, National Network on Cuba, even stuff like DSA. There are plenty of radical DSA branches. So look around, ask around. Organize with your comrades, and uh, together we will make a difference. So on that positive note, I think we will uh, we will end it for the day. This has been The Deep Program. I'm JT. I'm Hakeem. I'm Yugopnik. I'm Kala. And I'm Shikwil. Viva Kuba. <laughs> you can say it with a little more enthusiasm. <laughs> <laughs>